I really want to see this take off in the UK because, as you say, it's CBT on steroids. I'm convinced that it's much more effective and more quickly effective and more permanently effective. So you feel better at the end of treatment. In fact, you're cured, not just feeling better, you're cured. Welcome to the Needlefish Podcast. I'm Jim Firth. And I'm John Harland. Each episode, we will do our best to bring practical wisdom and advice from experts in various fields. So we hope you enjoy our show. And if you do, please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Spurrier. He's a cognitive behavioural therapy practitioner specialising in team CBT and a professional holistic coach. In 2011, having been a GP for 30 years, Peter decided to train in CBT and subsequently gained BABCP accreditation and began practising. He's an accredited coach practitioner with the European Mentoring and Coaching Council and in June 2017, he retired as the Senior General Practice Partner in a West Sussex coastal practice in order to devote his time to coaching, mentoring and CBT. Since then, he's focused his attention on team cognitive behavioural therapy. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. What inspired you into the medical profession in the first instance? Well, I've got to think back to when I was about seven, actually. I was in a working-class family. I would say financially insecure. I loved fixing things. And there was this sort of thing in the family that uh, generally was a good thing to leave the world a better place for you being in there. Yeah. So on that background, there was uh, one of us became unwell and, and the GP sort of visited us. And I thought, right, yeah, uh, he's got respect. He's fixing things, hopefully leaving the world in a better place. Financial security. Yeah. And he had a car as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, nobody in our street had a car, so maybe it was the car, but no, I think it was some other things as well. And since then, I've taken it for granted that's what was going to happen. So what path did you take into, into medical school? My first thing was just to get into medical school and you had to have the right A-levels, yeah. do quite well in the exams, behave yourself reasonably well at medical school, yeah. then continue learning, doing your hospital jobs and then your final path to um, whatever it is, in my case a GP. Did it live up to expectations, Peter, being a doctor? That's a great question. Yes and no, no because I wanted to fix people. Yeah. I, I thought that's that's what I can do. And then gradually you realise you can't do that particularly well. You can just be there, support them um, through their difficulties. Sometimes you can help, sometimes you can even fix, but generally it dawns on you that maybe you can't fix all that many people, actually. Right. Okay, so there must have been a point where... Did you become disillusioned, would you say? There's a kind of feeling of achievement all the time, like passing exams, yes. Getting through the hospital jobs, yes. Getting a general practice thing, yes. Developing a good practice, yes. And then, you know, training and and doing other things. At about the age of 55, I found myself wishing it away slightly. Right. I thought, Ah. this isn't right. Yeah. And I suppose that's the first time in my life I kind of took stock. And I thought, what do I enjoy about all this? And it was, I really enjoy spending time with people. Yeah really understanding their issues and seeing if I can be of some help to them in a way that they want. Yeah. So what led you on your discovery with CBT? What introduced you to that? 
well, having those questions, what do I really enjoy? I thought spending time with people. Yeah. What are my credentials? Could I do? Well, I suppose I know something about mental health, mm -hmm. CBT. You can spend an hour, not 10 minutes, with everything else to do within that 10 minutes, but an hour. Oh, what a luxury. That yeah. sounds like heaven. So I thought, right, CBT. And I trained up in CBT. So how did you find out about CBT? Well, I suppose as a GP, it was an option to be aware of. Usually in the past, it was largely a matter of medications. Yeah. And increasingly, there was some access to psychological treatments. Such as? Counselling at first, and then later on, CBT became yeah. available in the NHS. So, so was a lot of what you were doing as a GP, as far as mental health issues went, was, was either medication or referral? Yeah, so exactly. It's largely a doctor's job to make the diagnosis, yeah. so to work out what's wrong and then to work out what the right treatment is. Yeah. So yes, to signpost in the right way or prescribe. Yeah. Or refer on to uh, secondary care. So so actually going to CBT at that time must have been a revelation and a kind of liberation for you to actually explore the actual treatment and, and, and obviously having more time to help other people and to spend time with people. How did you know that? I don't know. <laughs> I kind of just came to that conclusion. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so I went into it imagining again, oh, this is a different way to fix people. Yeah. And uh, that, for various reasons, that's not a great first approach. But it was certainly a great learning curve. So I was uh, busy, very busy, too busy, GP. Yeah, yeah. And I was having this fantasy about practicing CBT at the same time. But actually, having got the thought in my mind, solutions began to appear. So yeah. there was just things started happening. And I thought, oh, that kind of fits quite well. And then something came from left field. And, oh, that could free up some time for me. Oh, that's a win-win for somebody mm. if they stepped into those roles for me. Yeah. And somehow it happened that I could release myself for some time, a day a week, to learn, do a diploma and actually practice CBT. Had you seen anybody who'd had tremendous results having had cognitive behavioural therapy? Yeah. And did that influence your decision in moving your learning forward? Again, interestingly, I was aware it was effective. I know that there was evidence for benefit. Mm. Um, but I wasn't sure about just how brilliant the results were. Right. And I, I suppose I had, a, I had an idea that, oh, I wonder if I could do better <laughs> right. with what I would be bringing uniquely to it. Yeah. So what is CBT? For those listeners who, who might not be uh, particularly au fait with it. Yeah, it's the C, cognitive. What that means is whatever is going through your mind, consciously and maybe less consciously, like thoughts and images, memories, beliefs, interpretations of things. And those um, thoughts are often a little bit inaccurate for various reasons. And the other thing about them is usually they're automatic and unchallenged. So just looking at your thoughts, mm. checking them out is one part of it. That's the C. Yeah. And the B, behavioural. So often what we do is kind of automatic. And in response to our feelings, by looking at the thinking, you can intervene actually looking at the behaviour, which is really quite hard mm. to change behaviour when you've got all that thinking and beliefs going yeah. on. Um, so the kind of interact and actually going to work on both parts is, is I think, the most effective, looking at how you can change behaviour and thinking. Where does cognitive behavioural therapy start? Where, where did it begin? About 2,000 years ago. 
Oh, really? Just before Christ, a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, I don't know whether I'm saying that right, anybody who knows, um, yeah. came up with the idea that something like it's not what happens to a man which disturbs him, mm. it's, it's what he makes of it, it's, it's what he thinks about, about it. it. Right. So he was onto something then, yeah. a Stoic philosophy idea. And I suppose that's bubbled on through history in various ways, but particularly the beginning of the 19th century, when around 1900s, yeah. psychoanalysis was obviously the the thing that was going on and and a few people began to think beyond these unconscious thoughts that the psychoanalysts were dealing with and actually spotting some thoughts mm. and beliefs and working with them so there was somebody called Alfred Adler who was noticing that beliefs were impacting how a person was in life and then somebody called Karen Horney who um, was a kind of activist for female well-being yeah noticed all these thoughts that women were having which contained the word should Okay. Which was not quite accurate. Yeah. Um, unchallengeable. And then around 1940s, 50s, somebody called Albert Ellis came up with REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. And yeah. so he was starting to work with these beliefs that Adler was talking about, mm. self defeating beliefs, and trying to rationalize them. Are these all psychologists or, or people who are in the field of mental health? Yeah, yeah. Mostly. It's yes. quite remarkable, you know, because I'd probably do a disservice to our ancestors, but I always thought that mental health problems have only in the last 25 years been considered a, a sort of a acceptable to talk about and to address, whereas maybe back in the early part of the centuries of both the 1900s and the, the 20th century, you know, if you had a mental health problem, you were... You were kind of compartmentalized into a, an institution, and then that, that was you. I mean, I never realized, and that's probably through my own ignorance, that this therapy, uh, CBT, went back that far, and literally there was more kind of consideration for it over the, over the last, whatever, thousands of years or hundreds of years. So that's quite a revelation to me. How does that fit in? I mean, how was CBT, for instance, considered... Back in the Victorian times, would it have been considered? I think they were more into psychoanalysis. Yeah. And all this stuff was sort of subconscious, unconscious, not accessible, and it was the job of the psychoanalyst to come up with some sort of diagnosis of some sort. Would it be people who, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of who would have had access to that treatment. I suspect there were um, some interesting cases that these yeah. psychoanalysts would want to work with anyway regardless just out of pure interest yeah. Um, yeah sorry i deviated off but i was just interested when you were talking about going back that far i'm just amazed that there was it was so kind of advanced or or there was consideration given because i always have this this impression that mental health issues were were, were something that would should be seen and not heard almost you know it was it I was i think that's a generational thing John, it is, a, it it is. Yeah. i think you're right i think it's a generational thing and i think it's important that i just needed to ask that question because it was a burning question in my head that i thought hold on a minute you know it's gone back that far which is amazing which is great so who are the sort of key people at the moment who are CBT superstars. Yeah. Somebody called Aaron Beck. Um, I've heard of Aaron Beck. Yeah. So um, in America, yeah. was doing this cognitive stuff. And mm. um, up until then, people hadn't done very well with depression. And, and it would seem that this cognitive work, working on thoughts, was going to be helpful for depression. Mm. Um, and then the behavioral people started to sort of show an interest and they started to work together so we got the CBT right. and it looked to be effective in many cases depression and anxiety. That's quite incredible isn't it? 
So who were your inspirations, Peter? In terms of CBT, yeah. it all made sense to me and it was a direction for me to go. But I have to say that it wasn't really until I came across the work of David Burns that I really started to okay, get, yeah, yeah. catch on fire with, with what was happening. So, you know, his approach just seemed to make sense. Up until then, I was inspired by part of what somebody over here was saying and part of what somebody who was doing this branch of CBT and there's several branches of CBT now, like uh, acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavioural therapy and mindfulness-based and compassion-focused. And So there was little bits all over the place which were inspiring, but no one particular school was sort of saying, yeah, that's, that's, mm-hmm. the, one that, that's, that's the one that's going to do it. Each one seemed to be kind of limited. And, and I so, wanted to make sure the patient was getting the best of everything. So did you try a lot of these before you ended up? Settling on teams. Yes, I dabbled a little bit mm. with the various approaches. Then I came across somebody who was mixing them more, but I still wasn't really switched on to how that was going to work. Yeah. Um, and then I came across David Burns, and, and it, it was a package which brought it all together and, and really effective. So if I wanted to become a practitioner, how would I go about doing that? If you wanted to be a practitioner, you could... Um, Put a get in an office tomorrow and say I'm now a, a practitioner. Oh, really? Because I've heard about it and I'm going to do this. Goodness, there's nothing to stop you doing that. That's slightly worrying, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you don't need any qualifications. Okay. But you wouldn't get hired by any organisation. Probably they would um, want some sort of proof of your skill and experience. Authenticity. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so uh, you'd probably want to be registered with the BABCP. British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapy. Okay. As a as a of a stamp of approval and proof of your skills and competence. Would I need a background in medicine or psychology to be able to register with them? Yeah, could Jim and I do it? Just like you know, just as an example. How easy is it to do it? It was easy for me because I had this um, sort of mental health core profession thing yeah gp mental yeah yeah so that got through but if you haven't got that i think it's quite hard to build up a kind of portfolio to show that you've got something behind you to start off with yeah that's probably quite reassuring it is actually uh, i was just yeah just putting it out there (laughs) so before you even start training up and becoming accredited yeah have this core entry if you haven't got that you've got to develop that first yeah and then you go through a training program or you know, diploma or something. Yeah. And then you go through um, practice and um, demonstration of supervision and reflection and mm. progression, and then um, you become accredited. So this is sounding more and more difficult to actually do. Yeah. It's not something that somebody like me or, or you, John... Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, Jim. <laughs> could, just, could just walk into, I yeah. guess. Yeah, no, that's okay. good. I'm glad How long does it take to get great results uh, or to get results at all with CBT? CBT as usual? Yeah, regular CBT. Depends on the practitioner, depends on what you're treating. Mm. For instance, in the right hands, um, certain conditions can be treated in one or two sessions, like phobias. Okay. Um, okay. Classically can be treated in one session plus another bit of preparation. Yeah. A lot of anxiety conditions can be treated in a small number of sessions. Mm. Depression is a little bit harder, a little bit longer sometimes, but that can be treated quite quickly too. Generally, CBT as usual, people think in terms of between 10 and 15 sessions. So does it depend on the, on, on the patient? Depends on the patient and the condition, yeah. Yeah. 
So the level of anxiety, the level of phobia, the level of depression, and how much they give up to the treatment, I would have thought. Oh, definitely. So you fit on something really important there. And the motivation, for sure, yeah, uh, is a key part of it. But also what would be interfering with their progress. There might be some really tough issues which yeah. um, may be really hard to overcome, even though the anxiety may be not very high or whatever. Yeah. Um, the barriers to improvement might be quite substantial yeah. for some people. I think the first time I ever really heard about CBT was in relation to post-traumatic stress. Okay. And people coming back from, I think it was probably Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and it was used very much, I think, as a treatment for PTSD. Definitely, yeah. And um, some people uh, specialise in that and do a great job. Um, again, it's, uh, it's something that can be treated reasonably quickly, depending on the skill of the therapist and, mm-hmm. and the issues. And the level of the patient's condition as well. I mean, if they experienced something, say for instance, somebody had been at war and experienced something absolutely horrendous and they just had the level of, of that experience was so great, would that have an effect on on their treatment? I mean, if it was absolutely, it was all horrendous, but really kind of the, the level of the experience, does that make a difference? Interestingly, um, the level of the experience in those terms may not be the crucial issue. It's, it's the barriers to improvement. Right. So actually somebody who's quite severely unwell can make a very rapid recovery and a dramatic recovery for various reasons. Yeah. Um, because sometimes the nature of their thinking can be so discoverable as erroneous. Right. And once they discover that, they get better. Is there anything that you can't treat with CBT or that's uh, really (laughs) difficult to treat? It depends what you mean by treatment. Well, I'll I'll give you... I've got a question, actually, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Actually, maybe there's a good time to ask you. Do do you treat depression and anxiety in someone who's terminally ill? And how how would you manage that? So to be really cold and clinical about it, I'm just going to remind you of what Epictetus said. It's not what happens to you, it's what you make of it. Ah, okay. All right. Um, even to that level, even when you've been diagnosed with a terminal yeah. illness, it's not necessarily what happens to you, it's what you're making of it you. that will cause unnecessary suffering. Yeah. And there's a great example from David Burns. He uh, he does podcasts, mm. almost as good as this one, but um, some ways ago. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you went onto his website, you would find um, some life treatment of a patient uh, who was also a therapist called Marilyn, who was diagnosed with a terminal cancer right. and was deeply, deeply depressed and anxious and, mm, yeah. you know, really awful for her. Yeah. But she um, improved considerably after treatment. Wow, wow, that's amazing. In fact, David Burns inspired that question from me because it was watching David Burns that actually made me kind of come up with that question I wanted to ask you. Yeah, uh, you can go onto his website and search yeah. his podcast and put Marilyn in there, I think. Okay. And uh, you'll find, you'll be able to listen to that. That's a great story. Mm. Has the pandemic affected your work at all? Yeah. So the first thing was the social distancing. Yeah. Before the actual lockdown. So I've got these Perspex barriers put up and mm. um, in my office. Um, I think that lasted for a week or two before you couldn't even do yeah. that. Then it had to be on Zoom or teams. Skype or Teams or whatever. Yeah. That, obviously, that was a big change. Mm. Um, we had to all work uh, remotely. 
But actually, it worked very well. I was going to say that probably worked quite well. I mean, better than over the phone, which I think would have been difficult. But actually, over the phone can work pretty well too. Oh, can it? Did it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people find uh, a lot of uh, success just over the phone. So, surprisingly. Oh, that's interesting. Even just using technology without actually having intervention from a therapist, just working with a program can have benefit. Yeah. 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 So, So are the programs available that you can use to... Yeah, I can't. Uh, certainly, the NHS started using them. Oh, okay. I, I think they're more effective if they're used alongside a therapist. Yeah. But they can be effective on their own, as can a book. Yeah. That was the thing. Just switching to Zoom w- was the big change, and yeah. it was fine. And actually, there's benefits. Yeah. You know, just having the face there to look. Well, at. absolutely. That's why I said about it, the phone must have been. I would, if if I was having treatment, I would want to see you. I would. I mean, having met you, definitely. You'd, you'd want to be face to face, John. Wouldn't <laughs> I you? would. I. I. You're I can't. A people person. I'm a people person. Yeah. I want to see. I want to see people look Human at beings. me. And and yeah. even if I can't touch them or actually physically be in the same room as them, I need that physical identification of of someone trying to be uh, or help me or or relate to me or just talk to me. Yeah. You know, I yeah. find it. I mean, I, I I like Zoom and Teams. I know it. A lot yeah. of people are. The few people having Teams and Zoom fatigue at the That's moment. right. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, but I, I, I benefited massively from it through through various reasons. Maybe we'll come on to later. But anyway, yeah, no, that's why I said about the phone because I think you know, if I spoke to you, Peter, I would want to see you. But yeah. it's great that you it worked for you on the on the phone. So that means it worked for other people. Yeah, no, that's secondhand um, that it works on the phone. And actually, I think there are a number of people who would kind of prefer that for various reasons. Really. Yeah, like, uh, you know, people with certain sorts of anxiety. Yeah, I can get it. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the nature of the problems uh, the pandemic brought, obviously you've got the real problems like, you know, losing people and long COVID and and whatever long COVID um, actually entails because people are still trying to work that out. People worried about taking vaccines, I guess. Yeah, that as well. So apart from those real life things, what struck me was, Nothing much changed. It was still the same problems. Really? But they were just magnified um, in a certain way. So if somebody was coming to see me with um, anger issues about management or something, Mm. what did COVID do? It made their anger at the management even worse. So it increased or intensified the issue? Yeah. Wow. Or if somebody had health anxiety, it made the health anxiety even worse. Yeah. So it just kind of magnified what was already happening in many ways yeah. that's what struck me it wasn't all of a sudden there's a whole new um, lot of problems mm. did you get more patients come to you did you find your workload increased currently i'm at capacity so yeah um, you know it was a matter of me saying i'm sorry i can't take on any more patients so it, was, it didn't increase my workload a lot of my work is treating gps is it so there's a, an organization which is there to support gps uh, who are having mental health okay. challenges. Um, so I get a lot of my referrals from there. So yeah. ultimately I just had to switch it off and say, you know, I can't take any more. Uh, private referrals, you know, unfortunately telling people they'd have to wait. That's pretty cool, isn't it, that, you know, you've got GPs who are looking after GPs. Yeah, that's that's very... That's nice. That's really... <laughs> and, and very, very because, comforting because to know. Who, who who does look after Absolutely. the GPs, you know? Absolutely. After all the pressures they've been through in the yeah. last, however m- many months, 18 months or so, that is, that is very important. Yeah, and, I, you know, maybe the NHS has been pretty slow on that one, looking after their own. Yeah. <laughs> We've been expected to be just kind of totally strong all the time. 
yeah. yeah. and uh, probably suffered for that. They're kind of indestructible, aren't they, GPs in the medical profession? You're supposed to be, you know, you, you're not, you, you can't break you lot. <laughs> and that's, that's a really good way of putting it, we're supposed to be. That's right. And actually, when you're supposed to be, um, when you're not, you take it hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So can we move on to Team CBT? Yeah, definitely. Because that appears to me to be uh, CBT on steroids, kind of yeah. super supercharged CBT. Absolutely, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. What is it and how does it differ from regular CBT, Peter? Well, I suppose ultimately there is nothing completely new in there. It's just a great package of doing everything, all the steps correctly, but perhaps the unique Part of it is the step with respect to motivation and resistance. Yeah, We've got the A, which used to be agenda setting and mm. now is called assessment of resistance, mm. and which looks particularly at that. That's never been really prioritised before or properly understood. But I have to say that all the steps in TEAM, because TEAM stands for T-E-A-M, testing, empathy, assessment of resistance and methods, mm. each of those steps... It's so beautifully crafted, the way David Burns has done it. And is David Burns the the chap who's put this whole sort of method together? Yeah, so he was actually with Aaron Beck in, like, you know, the early days. Yeah. um, Worked with him. And Aaron Beck was having these ideas about cognitive therapy, but just a little bit dry and Mm. difficult for the public to understand, maybe. Mm. I think what he did was kind of just energise it a bit and make it more understandable to the public. Um, But then he spotted problems, Areas which were not done particularly well, areas which ought to be better done, perhaps. Yeah, I think probably his journey started with, well, certainly the testing, because he came from a, a research background and he continued testing yeah. with this assessment every session. So this testing, is it, he measures, doesn't he? He uses measurement, which is quite unusual. Am I correct in saying that he measures how the patient feels and continues to measure that? Yeah. yeah. So, so the patient can understand if they're getting better or worse. Yes. He can, as a therapist, he can understand how he's helping the individual, if he's helping them or if he's not. Yeah, and it's more than that. So certainly, is he helping them or not is a crucial part of it. And mm. that's obviously important to know. It's surprising that it's n- every therapist isn't required to kind of yeah, check that. Yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense, does it? But the way he does it, this questionnaire that he uses every session, he will ask about levels of anxiety, levels of depression levels of anger, Mm. any suicidal thoughts, but also levels of happiness and how you're getting on with relationships. And you can fill this in in second time you've used it, like a couple of minutes before the session, and it gives you such a window of what's going on because one of the things he noticed was even the cleverest counsellors, the brightest psychologists who were imagining they knew how the patients felt were getting it wrong. I think the key word there was imagining, wasn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, believing, imagining, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's difficult for them to swallow when you actually test. They're not. No. Um, sometimes patients come a- can come across as bright and cheerful, and you don't know. Mm. Actually, they're profoundly depressed until you actually just ask these questions on a questionnaire. And for some reason, questionnaire just helps you get it down. Yeah. Whereas if somebody says, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. It's, it's not specific enough, no, is it? No, it's just, I, I, it just works very well. So it gives you that snapshot. Yeah. At the beginning, really important. And as you say, it tests how the session went. So mm. you get the snapshot at the end and it will measure progress between sessions. Yeah. And also, how did the session go for you? Mm. Did you feel understood? Did I project warmth? 
was it helpful and so on so how the session actually went as well i just want to know how you deal with someone who said the session was garbage i didn't get anything from it and this isn't working for me clearly there's going to be times when that happens so you as a therapist are then in a position where you're thinking how do i deal with that well that's really good most therapists wouldn't want to hear that and would back away no, from exactly yeah. yeah and would defend and justify and yeah. you know maybe blame the patient mm for being resistant or something and uh, what gradually dawns on you as you're doing this team cbt is actually that's where the gold lies really oh the session was garbage you know obviously i wasn't sort of choosing the right approach with you or wasn't understanding what you were saying oh please tell me more about that oh well this always happens i go along and tell my story and then they want to treat me with drugs and that's just keeps happening and yeah. i'm just sensing that you're not understand. okay so i really haven't been understanding you is that what you're saying yeah, because you don't know how it feels to have this sort of what I'm going through and um, how can you possibly understand? You've never been through it. You've, right, absolutely. And I can't possibly understand what you're going through. So then you, you're getting onto some really useful stuff. Mm, this yeah. is gold. This is great. So when you get feedback like that, you think, yeah. yes, this is good stuff. So you're in completely removing your ego and, and opening the door with rapport, deepening that connection with the, the person who you're treating and they're listening and hearing what they're saying yeah so your ego's got to learn that actually that's got to be tough though right it's a tough journey Mm. at first but once you've made the journey um you welcome feedback Mm. negative feedback but in the meantime while you think that you're quite good at fixing people or you're really good at empathy or whatever and you find out you're not that's (laughs) you're right yeah it's really interesting, all this conversation. I'm sorry I bumped, bumped, bumped no, no. it in. But actually, what I was going to say was, obviously, I spoke to Peter prior to the pod today, and we were discussing the, the, the possibility of me having a session with Peter because I've had anxiety problems, and Jim, you know this, for, for the yeah. last 40-odd years. And we thought it would be helpful to try and have a session. It's obviously not practical because of the time. But we decided to have a conversation about anxiety, my anxiety, uh, and and understand the process of of what Peter does and and teams and everything else. And you talking about it like that was just exactly what we kind of touched on in terms of what Peter did was turn my feelings of anxiety into positive relationship with anxiety. Mm. and what the positives were from my anxiety. So when you get asked that question, my immediate response is, there isn't any, Peter. There aren't aren't any. So he kind of actually furthered the the discussion progressed until I had a whole list of positives about my anxiety. And it was about what I was as a person and what ultimately was possibly causing this was jumping straight to to the the end of our conversation, which unfortunately was too short, was that I was overloading on all the good things about me. Yeah. And I'd overloaded them to such an extent that I couldn't control them. And that, when Peter was talking about negativity, we talked about resistance when we had our conversation and I had been resistant to resolving my anxiety issues over the years and I didn't understand why but Peter actually made me understand through a process of questioning and and, and, and analyzing each aspect of what goes on through my anxieties that I could understand that so I got a great example (laughs) of how it all works and I know I know it's a long process and I know that we felt it was too short but I mean as I said before the pod I came in I was I was actually quite drained Mm. in a good way 
But Peter had, had worked his process through. Can I just emphasise that perhaps the really important thing to take away from this is negative feelings such as anxiety or even a feeling of inadequacy or hopelessness. Those feelings are showing what is absolutely right about you and your core values. It's just that maybe they're coming on too strong and, and you, you want to dial them down to a really healthy and useful level so you can hold on to those beautiful parts of you those important parts of you the healthy and useful parts and maybe not have to suffer the intensity um, when the level is too high and i think uh, i I just love your listeners to take away that message and uh, maybe think about that well being as as you've gone through the process yeah John, it'd be interesting if you and Peter could give us an example of what it might be like to see you for the first time. Yeah, so um, in the real world, yeah, um, you might have said, oh, I wonder if Peter Sparrow can help me and we might have a little chat and I'll just check you out to make sure that we're a kind of good match. Yeah. How would that be? Would you, would, would you take a phone call to begin with or would it be an email? So whatever contact I'd have, I would get a sense of, is this a good match? Certainly if I was going to keep anybody waiting... Yeah, I'd want to know a little bit more. So we'd we'd want to have a conversation about whether they're up to what's happening for them. Okay, just know a little bit more whether they they've got the right ideas about CBT that it's not just something that's kind of done to them. They're going to have to do some work. Okay, yeah. and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, just to get a feel, twenty minute conversation maybe, mm. or engage with them straight away, but without a commitment. So you, you just get a feel both ways, and you kind of agree on quite a lot, including the structure. Yeah, um, and the structure. The first part of the structure is: could you commit to filling this form in, which is the testing? Okay. So I showed John a copy of the form just to quickly fill in the scores yeah. and anxiety, and yeah. depression, and anger. And I don't know what that felt like for you. Well, it was it was quite liberating because everything I saw on that list. Oh, I, I've got that. I I feel that. I feel that. And it was kind of like it was like a recognition for me that there was something that I could actually express and say yes that's that's me that's me that's me so all those things i i I kind of circled and recognized first strangely felt good about in a in a kind of in a liberating kind of way because i thought this form is telling me something about myself and behaviors and and feelings and emotions yes i've got all those and i thought i was on the path to resolution because they they were things i recognized does that make sense yeah, really important part of it, I think, yes. Good, because, I mean, and then when we got to the point of, when you said to me, what are the good things about ang- your anxiety, what are the positive things? There's none. Yes. Absolutely none. <laughs> it is just white panic that happens. And you just kind of kept exploring the, the positives about each element of my anxieties that I felt for however, however long. And now I'm, from going from... None. There was none. I kept thinking, no, there's none. Peter, please. <laughs> I had a whole A4 page full of positive reasons. And so what did that do to the way that you felt about your anxiety, John? I think what Peter did was made me realise that understand why I was going through it, mm. what I could do about it. It made just each one thinking, yeah, I need to be vigilant about fear because I have a fear of failure. So I'm that anxiety is helping me. Not to fail. Not to fail. Yeah. It's telling me not to fail, but 
actually that's a good thing then mm. you know <laughs> and then there was a and, it, and so it went on yeah you get asked the percentage of these feelings and everyone nearly everyone was 100 percent, wasn't it peter yeah yeah right there was a couple of 90s but there were mostly hundreds and he said well if you could turn those down to and you retain all of those that you could keep because you don't want to get rid of them mm. what would you turn them down to and i said five percent on every one of them because I've retained all of those feelings of the, uh, that I feel in anxiety, but I've just turned them down. And I said to him, so what you're saying, Peter, is I've overloaded on all of these emotions. And he said, that's what you've done. Mm. Because all of them, everything you're talking about is, is, is you. Mm. All the good things about you, all the positive things that you want to try and do to pe- for people, to achieve for yourself, that's just you. Yeah. You don't want to lose those. No. You want to keep them, just manage them better. And not try to literally force emotion that will take you uh, to a point where you can't control it. Mm. Yeah, sort of really important parts of all that. So we want to hold on to what's useful to you, what you value. Yeah. Parts of it, the anxiety that you value. Yeah. What's healthy. Yeah. Um, But we want to let go of, you know, wrecking your life or interfering too much or feeling really horrible. Yeah. And not just anxiety, all the other negative feelings that, you can identify they all have value yeah and i think what we said was actually these uh, negative feelings are saying what's absolutely right about you what's good and what you really value they're not bad things no it's just that the volume is too high that's right <laughs> they were too loud yeah. and 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 obviously we discussed the purpose of um, why i wanted to to have this conversation with peter and to bring it into the podcast was because that's me I thought if there's anybody out there that suffers anxiety that could actually benefit from, benefit from my story in a, a very short space of time and, and see what benefit I could get from Peter, which is enormous in a very short space of time, then that's going to help someone mm. and hopefully help someone out there who who is desperate yeah, and, and, who, and who is suicidal. Expose, expose them to a form of therapy which appears to be effective. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And if that could be done, then and Peter, it, it would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, and we're seeing benefits of your anxiety, this caring about other people, um, how they're feeling, having this drive to provide something which is going to help people. You need a bit of anxiety to, to have that drive. Yeah, you do, because otherwise, you, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost an adrenaline thing that you need to have that drive to get up in the morning and do all the things you want to do for people and for yourself and, and for your family and for friends and just generally live your life. I said to Peter, what can be so difficult about just wanting to be happy, make other people happy and, and live your life? And it can be a, a massive stress. Yeah. Simplistically put, that's a problem for people and that's basically what it comes down to you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely but we're seeing those values and that's your anxiety you want to be happy you want other people to be happy and that's great it is and that's right but it's just sometimes in life it just overloads and it just gets too much and, and from that standing point from now I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how I, I progress. I mean, I, you know, I'd love to see you again, Peter, but <laughs> it's probably not practical. Uh, but maybe it's something I explore in well, my life. No, what I really regret about conversation today is that it was too short. And when I was listening to your story and how touched I was by it, so this is the E for empathy. Mm. for me to really understand what's going on yeah. and just how awful some of it, it felt sometimes is essential. So this is the... He and teams. And my regret is we couldn't spend enough time in that place that 
you know, I'd really like to know more. Yeah. Before we went on to the resistance work, which yeah. is what we were just talking about. Yeah. So I really regret that. And I would just so love to work more with you if you're willing to, you know, step into the work. Well, I would. I mean, I would because it is, it, I mean, I'm being very open about this today and I'm sorry if, if I'm, I'm over, overtaking the thing. But if for 40 years has been a problem, but if your treatment, if the, if CBT teams is is the way forward for me then that's that's great and that's the message we want to get out to to people yeah definitely okay so that's kind of laying the foundations really for the actual methods that's the emin team what i really love about the methods part is i struggled with all these different schools of therapy and wanted to get the best bits out of all of them yeah and do you go that direction or that direction and david burns has, has kind of grouped them all together and said it's it's okay to use whatever methods you like at this stage okay and his mantra is tools not schools mm. which really appeals to me because i want to have all the tools which could help mm. so you can embrace behavioral stuff role play gestalt stuff motivational stuff you know 100 or 150 methods that we kind of embrace and you can bring your own methods in as well so what's your favorite method Lisa? well it's, it's david's favorite method and also mine it's called externalization of voices which is a role play where the therapist and the client play roles of the client's thoughts one the negative critical thoughts okay and the other, the more positive, self-affirming, realistic, perhaps truer thoughts. And either the client or the therapist will lay into the other person with the negative thoughts, and the other person will have to answer back to the negative thoughts. Okay. Um, so, so how would that sort of play itself out? If, if you and I were role-playing, what, what would we, how would I start? You could choose whether to be the negative Jim, Okay, I'd, I'd rather be the positive one, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you could start out being the positive, and I'd lay into you and okay. saying, you know, whatever the issue is, I'd say, you know, Jim, um, I just want to remind you, um, you mustn't forget it, that you're useless. Okay. And, and then you'd have holy, to respond. Holy moly, so <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but okay. <laughs> I suppose if if you think I'm useless, there must be a degree of truth in that, because... You wouldn't say it otherwise. No, it's totally true. Um, and th- we've got lots of reasons to say that. You, you know, you, you, your podcast is not perfect by any means. Oh, my God, this is awful. I'm crushed. Yeah. Um, I'm glad and, I'm and sitting I, here. How would I respond to that? So this, this is the whole point, that okay. um, you will practice saying, well, actually, nothing in this world is perfect. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, nice response. And actually, I've got some pretty good feedback about it. So yeah. anything you want to respond with in a defensive manner, well, you answer back and yeah. you, you shut me up. Yeah. yeah. You may be defensive and say, you know, that's nonsense, I've got this evidence. Yeah. Um, or you may um, accept and say, yeah, it, it is It is a bit rubbish, but, you know, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like what it. we're into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So that would be an acceptance. Okay. Um, or you could say, no, actually, you know, it could be better, but I've got a plan and we're going to continuously develop it and it's right. going to get better yeah, and better yeah, and you yeah. just wait. Yeah. <laughs> or you could say um, something like, um, I'll tell you what, there's only one thing uh, interfering with this podcast and you know what it is? What? Listening to you, you'd be, you'd be saying you'd be saying, you'd be saying that to me as a negative voice. Okay. Oh dear. Um, so it's a way of responding to your own negative thoughts. That's just one powerful technique. 
How do you think you did answering back to your own negative voice? I don't think I did particularly well. I think you probably won that by a country mile, to be honest with you, Peter. Okay, so next thing to do, um, part of the method is we expect to do role reversals. So if you could take on the, the negative, Jim, and you lay into me with the same criticism, maybe I'll have a go and I don't know, I might do better, I might not, but we'll have a go. Well, your podcast is useless and you are not very good and I don't enjoy what it is that you're talking about. Well, yeah, the podcast isn't perfect, um, but actually that's part of its charm, really. And mm, yeah, okay, if, if there's bits that we can improve, um, I'd certainly be interested in that. But actually, um, for you to call it useless, I think is just totally off the mark. got evidence that a lot of people do enjoy this podcast, so I'm sorry, I don't really accept what you're saying. Ah, oh, goodness me, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Who do you think won that? Well, you, obviously you won again. You don't yeah. win a lot. Or, is this best of three? I think, <laughs> I think you pretty much, yeah, you, you killed it completely. So would you say I won a lot or a little? A lot, lot, lot. Would you say I won massively or a lot? I think massively, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, this is the final part. Um, role reversal. And now you have a go at uh, answering back to me. I'll be the negative one again and um, see if you can really crush me now. Okay. Okay, so I just want to remind you that you're useless and your podcast is pretty useless too. You think that, that I'm useless and there may be parts of me that could be better. You know what? Probably some of the podcasts could be better as well. And I'm certainly looking at great guests so that we can make the podcast better and make it much more interesting for people so that they enjoy it more. Who on that one? I think I did. A lot or a little? I think quite a lot. Massive or a lot? I think probably massive. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm just okay. glad you didn't say I'll get rid of that, John. No, <laughs> never, John, never. <laughs> yeah, so, so that, that's it in a nutshell. There's, there's a bit of a, a, a longer setup to it, but uh, that's basically in a nutshell. That's, um, that's externalisation of voices. I can imagine David Burns enjoying that kind of role-play stuff, though. I mean, I can really see him doing it. Yeah, although I have to say he's got a heart of gold as well. So. Oh, no, no, I, I would have thought... No, absolutely, can see that too. But, I mean, he, he's a type of character that would really embrace that kind of free thinking. So are, yeah. there, are there lots of methods, lots of tools in the toolbox, as it were? A hundred or more. Wow. All different sort of approaches. Yeah. Um, some of them sort of very cognitive. Mm. Some of them behavioural. Some of them motivational. Yeah. Some of them like to do with discovering uh, what's going on, perhaps at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, many different methods. What we've discussed largely today is just a build-up to the finale. And, <laughs> and once you've done the build-up, once you've laid the foundations, the methods just work really well. Is there any resistance from regular CBT therapists to teams? And, mm. or how, do, how, do yeah. they, how do you get to know about teams? Yeah, so there is resistance. You know, a lot of therapists don't like the idea of forms and ticking things. And sure. Yuck. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. It was my big... Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Mm. You know, I want to get on with this intuitive helping stuff. Yeah. But actually, I, I think it's almost negligent now to practice without it. Mm. Here's a good one, the empathy bit. Now, the, the problem here is that, as we said, most practitioners think they're really good at empathy. Yeah. And when actually you check it out, Turns out that, and, and this is from the patients, mm. turns out they're not as good as they thought. Yeah. And to have that measured, and as you say, the discomfort of learning that mm. um, can be, no, I don't want to do that. 
Um, I know I'm good at empathy. I don't even want to do that sort of testing. But yeah, the empathy is, I think, the most vital thing for me, uh, or I can imagine for anybody else, when they're having treatment. So you, you need someone to, to almost share the problem, own the problem, you know, just embrace your problem and, and understand, understand. The, the, the whole process of what that person is going through. So I think, it, you know, from my past experience, empathy has been the problem because no one, I didn't feel there was empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the, the missing link for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the case. And there is a very teachable structure to empathy. So important that the client feels that you really have understood and there's there's a way to achieve that and and to come across as warm really important to gain that trust and the the working alliance yeah really important and one of the strengths of team cbt is this very teachable he calls it the five secrets of effective communication and it's not only useful for therapists it's useful for everybody it's useful for everyday life. Yeah. yeah. It's useful for close relationships. It's useful for organisations. It's useful for international relations. If people could only do this, it would be phenomenal. Yeah. So within the empathy, there's this fantastic thing. And when we meet as, as a group of therapists, we show each other the same respect. Yeah. And it feels good. It's a good community. So empathy is teachable. I'm fascinated to understand how you can teach empathy. It's really quite simple, but there's emotional barriers. First stop is listen accurately and show that you've listened accurately by reflecting back. And that sounds easy, but it's not. Because people just want to make people feel a bit better by changing it slightly. So if somebody is saying, I feel totally useless, you'll say, okay, yeah, I understand you're feeling a little bit useless. That's not what I said. No. Totally. What I meant was 100%. Mm. Totally. And, you know, immediately you've lost them if you're just not reflecting back accurately. Mm. But you say a little bit because you want them to feel a bit better. Yeah. You don't want to go there with them. So just listening and reflecting back accurately is such an important one. Mm. And just understanding how that might feel. Mm. You know, that we kind of guess, but until you check it out, you may get it completely wrong to understand how people may feel. When we were speaking, I felt instinctively that you were absorbing and had sincere, I think that's the crucial word, sincere empathy with what I was telling you. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was, I don't, I, how, I, like Jim, how do you teach that? Some people had just haven't got that mechanism to be able to, to, to understand other people's problems. You, you know, they haven't got that sensitivity. They haven't got that caring degree of nature. I mean, you hundred million percent have but not everybody has what would you think like i said the the rules are simple it's like it reminds me when i was learning to play squash you know little things like cocking the wrist and keeping your eye on the ball and occupying certain place in the court very simple but you try and do them you mess up for emotional barriers because you're trying to hit the ball really hard or something yeah you can't bring yourself to do it and then gradually you sort of practice and you can do it a bit better but you've got to follow those rules yeah, you, you can't let your wrist drop. You got to, you got to follow the rules and practice, and then do it wrong. Get some feedback. Okay, try again, and maybe then eventually you can play a good shot. So how do you practice? Because you, clearly you don't practice on 
on clients. Oh yeah, you've got to practice on clients. Oh, um, okay. You've got to really work at listening. Yeah, but you can practice on each other. So there's workshops. There's we've got regular workshops for the UK group, but you can partake in weekly uh, events on a joining with America and, and other um, nationals to to just do this practice. So therapist to therapist. Yeah, so mm. role plays. But certainly you just need to keep honing with the patient and you get feedback. See that mm. evaluation of therapy afterwards, like, oh, I didn't really understand how you were feeling. Mm. You know, that you got the feedback and that's gold as well. You know, it was garbage or whatever you said before. All that's feedback. So what was that like for you? Tell me more. Mm. Okay, I, you know, I didn't really get that. So you learn and then you do better next time. I'm curious about how you want to take Team CBT UK forward. Yeah. What, what is it you want to do and want to achieve? With yeah, what's your aspirations, Peter? Well, I really don't want to turn people off by saying this is the best thing since sliced bread, but it is. Seriously, <laughs> I'm so, so taken by each of the elements and um, how rigorous they are. Because David Burns has worked so hard over so many years to yeah. get this right. I really want to see this take off in the UK. Because, as you say, it's CBT on steroids. I'm convinced that it's much more effective and more quickly effective and more permanently effective. So you feel better at the end of treatment. In fact, you're cured, not just feeling better. You're cured. And you want to make sure that continues into the future. When I first discovered Teams, there was nobody I could spot out there um, doing it. So I wrote an article just over a year ago in the CBT magazine and you know, saying, please contact me if there's anybody out there. No, really replies and then one person said oh i read your article and so there's two of us and then gradually one or two other people started to appear and then gradually you know more people showed interest and now we're kind of about 28 of a core group a mailing list um which is growing Mm. so in other words it just wasn't here yeah it wasn't taken on board maybe i don't know people resisted it for the reasons we gave yeah or maybe it was just because it was american or something so so if i if i wanted to take up team cbt therapy how would i go about doing that right now in this country you could go to our website which is called feelinggood.uk.com which is in the process of development okay but we have got a list of some enthusiasts in there and some practitioners yeah so you can contact them and see how they're fixed see if you're matched So if you went on that website, you could look and find a practitioner who had availability and who suited your needs. Mm. One of the problems is currently is capacity that we'd love to do so much more. And there's so much more we can do, like maybe start to serve organizations or Mm. do other things. But currently we're focusing on building interest, developing competence, developing capacity so that we can respond to inquiries consistently and quickly. And how can you get more CBT practitioners turned on to team Mm. practice? Well, if you are committed and you're willing to play a part, you can join the group. If you're kind of interested, you can go on the mailing list and receive newsletters. We're producing a newsletter. Right. We are trying to do workshops, so we've got something lined up for November with the British Psychological Society, a workshop hoping that maybe we'll be able to do something at the BABCP conference, and it's the European Congress as well, in Belfast in September, and do a workshop there. So attend the workshops. But if you're interested, just go on to David Burns's website, and you can 
listen to some of the podcasts or even um, you can sample some some other things on there as well. Yeah, he's um, he's quite a character. Yes, David Burns. Yes. I, I've, I have seen him on a number of uh, quite well-known podcasts and, and YouTube. Yeah, he, he never fails to sort of hit the mark, does he? Yeah, he's he's quite a, quite an individual and, and tremendous academic as well, isn't he? Stanford University, well worth checking out. Yeah, it can be quite controversial and direct, but um, I guess that's a strength. He he kind of he has no filter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. In a way, which is a great thing because he's very, very honest and 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 very charismatic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I yeah, guess it's worth pointing out his books as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, feeling yeah. good and feeling great. Yeah. And is there is there a third one? When panic attacks. Ah, when panic attacks. Right. Yeah. Are the five secrets to communication is that one? Feeling good together. Feeling good together. Yeah. And intimate relationships, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you'd be able to discover, you know, search on all of those. They're all available. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, I think so. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, yeah. and I've really enjoyed learning about CBT and Team CBT. And it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank and thank you for the, all the things you we discussed and and everything you did for me in the short time that we spent together. It's been absolutely. I can't tell you. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. I mean, when I first realised there was an opportunity, I was pretty nervous. But, I know. But having done it, I'm just so pleased to have uh, had the chance to air my enthusiasm, and I uh, hope it's uh, of interest. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Peter Spurrier. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please like, subscribe and tell your friends. For further information, please visit us at www.needlefishgroup.co.uk.